0: I'm Jason Lewis,
1: and I'm Todd Deshada.
0: Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. Well, to start things off today, you know, we're recording on Earth Day. So, how was your uh, how was your Earth Day? It was
1: amazing. Uh, I, well, <laughs> I'm tired personally, but that's just that doesn't have anything to do with it being Earth Day. Um, it's been, I've just been slammed. I feel like I'm about ready to go put a blanket of earth over the top of me and just give back to the to the world, you know? <laughs> just give. Wow. turn up some daisies. This took, took a dark turn. No, I'm <laughs> just take a long nap. <laughs> no, I. it was good. It was actually a really beautiful day here. And I felt like there is a lot of excitement on a lot of fronts about climate that I just noticed all over the place, you know, and I was kind of pumped up. I don't know if you caught any of Biden's uh, executive order that he announced today in Seattle, but Biden had an executive order about protecting forest and, and just a lot of overall work with conservation and other things about uh, defining some old growth forest. I didn't really realize that there wasn't like a standard definition of what an old growth forest is, but that was part of the announcement was that they're going to kind of standardize, categorize and protect some old growth forest. And one of the other things was, you know, they're going to do some work with communities and nonprofits, industries and unions to uh, create uh, forest related economic opportunities. So yeah, there was some, some cool stuff going on. Did you, did you catch that?
0: I didn't listen to the speech, but I, I did catch the highlights and I think yeah, it was a positive thing, right? I mean, we gotta we gotta count our wins or celebrate our wins these days. So for sure, it seemed like it was pretty thoughtfully done. You know, they were focused on the resilience piece. You know, making our forest mm-hmm. more resilient to wildfire. Right. You know, focused on the conservation piece, as you mentioned. With there was you know discussion too of like you know boosting funding and accelerating reforestation, which I thought mm-hmm. was good. So our topic this week is refrigerants and refrigerants being those products, you know, that make your AC in your car work, keep the uh, food in your fridge cool. And I recognize as we, we kick this off that it's probably not the sexiest topic in the world, but when when it comes to, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, when it comes to climate change, it's a, it's a critical one. For sure. But before we, we go there, wanted to talk about this week's reason for hope there's, you know, signs in the U.S. House that that climate action might finally be getting some legs. Representative uh, Jamie Raskin, who's, you know, a, a leader on the liberal side of things, just did a recent interview with Reuters where he, you know, was optimistic about the prospects of passing climate legislation. He said, you know, is quoted as saying, "We should cut the deals that we need to be cut." I think, you know, a recognition that we're not going to be able to to pass this, you know, much broader, more sweeping kind of build back better bill, mm-hmm. but that there are, you know, climate provisions that should and need to to move forward. And then, you know, on the flip side, I guess, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, Senator Manchin says something different every week, but I guess recently, you know, he indicated that he had a willingness to support the climate change investments if it, you know, was paid for by raising tax revenues and, Lowering, you know, the costs of prescription drugs covered by Medicare, which seem like small demands from a guy who usually wants all sorts of stuff. Hmm. But from my perspective, I mean, Democrats should should offer Manchin whatever he wants. I mean, you know, if that's billions of dollars headed to West Virginia to help, you know, retool a you know coal miner workforce, mm-hmm. if that's uh, you know giving the guy an upgrade on his houseboat using one of those yachts they see from uh, from Putin's buddies, I mean. whatever it takes at this point.
1: He'll be in there going, I can't read any of this. It's all in rush. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to back into it. It was opposites.
0: (laughs) In all seriousness, I know that he's a real moving target, but whatever they need to do to cut a deal is is really what needs to happen. (sighs) So pivoting to, to today's topic, refrigeration and cooling equipment are important in, in really in two ways when it comes to climate change. There are the refrigerants that, you know, we're going to talk about today. And then there's also the electricity demand. I mean, you know, anybody who lives in a hot place and has had to pay an air conditioning bill knows that air conditioning is, is an energy hog. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are really two facets to it. You know, what we're going to talk about today is really focused on the refrigerant side but I do think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that there is sort of this dual impact when we're talking about refrigeration and cooling. Interestingly, for those who might not be aware, refrigerants are responsible for around 11% of total warming emissions to date. Hmm. And the demand for air conditioners is is really set to to skyrocket, you know, over the next 30 years. It's estimated that we could be shifting from about three and a half billion AC units worldwide to nine point five by 2050, hmm. which is which is massive and and underscores the importance of dealing with this you know refrigerants issue. Yeah, our our guest today is Christina Starr from the Environmental Investigation Agency. Her focus is on eliminating super greenhouse gases called hydrofluorocarbons used as refrigerants in the cooling sector. She's participated in international and domestic climate negotiations on HFCs for the past eight years, including at the Montreal Protocol and with the US EPA. So I will attest to the fact, if you ever wanted an expert on refrigerants, Christina Starr is your person. Sweet. Christina, welcome to Climate Optimists.
2: Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here.
0: So let's start you off with a basic question. When you think about efforts to address climate change, uh, what gives you hope?
2: Thank you for asking this. I think it's an important question and in this work on climate. There's always a fine balance we need to strike between, on the one hand, you know, maintaining urgency about the the stark reality that we face uh, on this being a key decade for us to act on climate change. Right. And on the other hand, making sure we're armed with hope and knowledge that uh, these goals are still very much within our grasp. And I think there are two things that make me hopeful Overall, one is the knowledge that we really have the technologies and solutions we need to to reach our climate goals. And it's just a matter of implementing and scaling up their adoption much much more rapidly. And the second thing is I'm really hopeful because I think people from many walks of life and across the political spectrum are starting to realize that climate action isn't just about sacrifice or saying no to things. It's really about opportunities and benefits, both economically and socially.
0: You know, I don't think I've heard it put that way, but I think that's a great point. I mean, all too often sort of fixated on the problem and debates about the perceived negative economic impacts without recognizing that, you know, this will mean cleaner air, you know, has a chance to address, you know, climate justice. Well, let's let's dive into uh, refrigerants. So maybe starting with where refrigerants are used, you know, beyond maybe the obvious, and how those are, are linked to, uh, to climate change.
2: Yeah, so refrigerants are all around us every day, and we most of us don't even know it, and we're not aware of them, but they're basically used in any type of cooling system, whether it's in our home air conditioner, our household refrigerator, in our car air conditioner, and even in commercial settings like our supermarkets. They come into play in our cold food chain as well as in our vaccine cooling for example so they're they're really everywhere
0: and some folks may already be aware but there's obviously a downside to some of the refrigerants that are used and yeah I wonder if you can kind of speak to that why you know why are refrigerants or at least some of the refrigerants that we've used you know today or historically are problematic for for climate change
2: Yeah. So unfortunately, the the refrigerants we're most commonly using now are these synthetic chemicals. They're produced by large chemical companies uh, designed in labs as, as molecules and then produced in factories. And they are fluorinated chemicals known as hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. And HFCs are really potent greenhouse gases. It turns out that per molecule compared to carbon dioxide, they have thousands of times the global warming impact. Uh, The fortunate flip side of that is that they also are what are known as short-lived climate pollutants. So they actually break down fairly quickly in the atmosphere. Uh, They have a lifetime of about 15 years. So that means that if we mitigate their emissions now, we see pretty rapid results in the the atmosphere uh, in terms of reducing warming.
0: So I guess that is one of the silver lining that there is sort of just a transient impact and maybe some ways, you know, comparable to methane where, you know, methane breaks down much more quickly than having carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Exactly. So it sounds like, you know, clearly they're much more potent. How big of an impact are we talking, you know, when when we're talking about refrigerants and and global warming potential?
2: Yeah. So... Right now, if we look at all the emissions uh, from all greenhouse gases in the world, HFCs probably only make up around 2% to 3%, but that is increasing really quickly because HFCs are still being adopted as replacements for previous generations of refrigerants that are being phased out, which are the ozone-depleting refrigerants uh, that are regulated under the Montreal Protocol. So we're still increasing our adoption of them, and then you combine that with the fact that A lot of countries around the world have more and more demand for cooling, whether it be in their cold food chains or for air conditioning. And so if we don't act now to transition away from HFCs, they could end up contributing about 20% of all of our emissions within the next few decades. So it's a really significant part of the climate problem. And what we know uh, and what scientists tell us is that reducing HFCs globally can prevent about half a degree of warming in this century. So wow. that's truly significant. And, and in fact, it's a really vital piece of the strategy to meet our, our climate goals under the Paris Agreement uh, when we think about limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's, it's getting us you know, half a degree uh, towards that target.
0: That's huge. When you put it in that context, Um, as as listeners know, it's like every 10th of a degree, you know, we go above 1.5 is is very problematic. So yeah, half a degree is massive. Um, So it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, what we're looking at is like an existing problem, but a problem that has the potential to get much worse, given the growing need for air conditioning around the world, right? As we warm up as a globe, it could turn into a much larger problem if we don't curb the, the HFCs that that are being used now.
2: Absolutely. That that's right.
0: And so I guess that leads to the obvious question, which is, you know, you know, what kind of solutions are available?
2: Yeah. So I would kind of put the solutions to this problem into two buckets. And the first one is sort of transitioning away from using HFCs in our in our cooling equipment to using other things, using alternatives. And then the second bucket, I would say, and I can talk a bit more about that, um, is better preventing the emissions of the refrigerants that are already out there in the world in the equipment that we're using now. And so, in this first area, this is where, really fortunately, there are alternatives to HFCs that we can use as refrigerants. So, there are non synthetic molecules, or what are known as natural refrigerants, that are things that were around before we invented HFCs and were have been used in cooling in the past. Uh, and those are, are things like carbon dioxide is actually a good refrigerant, hydrocarbons and ammonia. Interestingly, carbon dioxide, which we all think of as the, the most widely abundant greenhouse gas and part of the problem, when we compare it to obviously a hydrofluorocarbon, an HFC with that has a global warming potential of, you know, four or five thousand times CO2. CO2 is actually a really huge improvement. So what we're really aiming for at the end of the day is to adopt other refrigerants that have either a zero or almost a zero global warming potential in in this equipment. And that's starting to happen a lot. We already see supermarkets, for example, using these uh, carbon dioxide refrigeration systems, especially in Europe, where they're a little bit further along in this transition than we are here in the United States. But there are a lot of examples. These, these solutions are already out there. And we're already transitioning to them. And, and really what we need to do is sort of accelerate that process. And then aside from, from that idea, which is a little bit of a gradual thing, right? You, you can only replace a refrigerant most of the time when you're buying a new pieces of equipment, right? But in the meantime, you know, that piece of equipment is still there. It's being used and it's leaking. And so the emissions happen both during its use... And then when we go to throw out that piece of equipment, you know, what happens to the gas when it's being disposed of? And unfortunately, it's a pretty common practice that, that the refrigerant is being vented into the atmosphere instead of being captured, uh, recovered from that equipment, and either it can be recycled or and reused in, in, a, in another piece of equipment that maybe still needs it. Uh, Or we actually also have uh, widely available technologies for destruction of HFCs. So the other piece of this really is creating creating the solutions throughout the existing life cycle of these products for reducing the leaks uh, and then recovering, capturing the gases and and either reusing them or destroying them. And this is an area that, that we really need to do a lot more in. Just to give you an idea, for example, I mentioned supermarkets earlier being these major users of HFCs. Each supermarket contains maybe around 3,000 pounds of of HFC gases, which ends up leaking at a rate of about 25% a year. And when you translate that into emissions, it's equivalent to the emissions from driving about 400 cars. So if we can reduce those leaks, if we can make sure the devices to detect hfc leaks are installed cuz so we can bring those leak rates down so that's one way we can you know take really quick action
0: so it's it sounds like there you know you talked about the two buckets there's really sort of this front end issue which is let's stop using the you know refrigerants that are problematic and then but then with the recognition that there's still all of these existing appliances that are out there and and it sounds like in that case there's sort of two pieces. One is making sure as they operate that they're not leaking. And then this, you know, disposal at, at end of life. And it sounds like those are all, you know, technically feasible. It's just a matter of ensuring that they, they take place.
2: Everything's technically feasible. There's no kind of, Oh no, what are we going to do? We can't get rid of HFCs. It's, it's all, um, the solutions are, are definitely available, which is what makes mitigating HFCs such of kind of a low-hanging fruit. And there's also the fact that we've done this before with other refrigerants. You know, the Montreal Protocol has already phased out ozone-depleting refrigerants, and we're essentially trying to do the same thing again. The piece we haven't really ever tackled has been this life cycle management piece, truly eliminating the emissions, especially these end-of-life emissions. But it's a big opportunity because when you can recycle, you know, an HFC, if you take it out of a piece of equipment, that then gives that HFC some value at its end of life. It creates an opportunity for someone to actually create a business of reusing.
0: So hearing you talk about recycling of HFCs, um, I guess, generated another question, which is, let's say I have a car that's, you know, running on HFCs today. You know, if I need to get that air conditioner serviced, unfortunately, I still have to use HFCs. In other words, I can't, you know, go to my local car garage and get them to swap out for something else. So there is continuing to be a need for HFCs for these products that are still mm-hmm. in use. Is that, is that fair?
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, but what you can do, say you ha- take your car in to get it, it serviced. If there is a problem with the air conditioner that contains an HFC, you want to make sure that they're actually solving the problem if they have to replace any of the refrigerant in it, right? Rather than just adding more refrigerant and not fixing the leak that was leading to a problem in the first place.
0: So I guess obviously concerning to hear that refrigerants, you know, some of these historical refrigerants have such a huge global warming potential, but exciting that there are solutions. And I guess that leads to, you know, how do we make these things happen, right? And if they're all technically feasible, what are the best ways to ensure that we can implement these at scale and avoid, you know, more of them escaping into the atmosphere?
2: Yeah, so we, we very much need the right policies and regulations in place, uh, both at a global level as well as nationally to, to do this. One really hopeful thing we have with with HFCs is a global agreement under the Montreal Protocol called the Kigali Amendment, uh, which agrees to phase down HFCs by about 85% over the next 20, 25 years. So this phase down is already going into effect and we actually have legislation that has passed by U.S. Congress to implement this. So it's given the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency A really broad scope of authority to regulate HFCs. And that's in the process of being, beginning to be implemented now. But it's not a phase out yet. It's just a phase down. And there are uh, those, including um, me, who think that this could actually go faster and needs to go faster. Uh, We need to make sure we're transitioning actually to the refrigerants that have a zero or a near zero global warming potential, not to new synthetic molecules that are being invented that are sort of a little bit better, but, you know, really don't get us to that end goal.
0: So it sounds like positive momentum, but there's still some tweaks that, that need to be made. What's, what's sort of the vision at this point for how vehicles, how, you know, my window air conditioner or refrigerator might be dealt with?
2: Yeah, well, there are things you can do as an individual, and, and I think we really do need most people are, are not even aware that these gases exist. So you're really, you're, you have a step up if, if you're listening to this and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm sitting on super greenhouse gases in my, in my garage <laughs> and in my window AC unit that I'm planning to you know, toss out before this summer. So certainly there are things you can do you know, as an individual. Number one is that if you're going to throw out your AC or your old equipment, look into approved programs that will recover the refrigerant. There's actually a, an approved list of EPA partners for a voluntary uh, refrigerant recovery program. It's called the Responsible Appliance Disposal Program, or the RAD program. So you can go on EPA's website. You can check that out. Uh, and another thing, you can actually... Organizations like mine are, are trying to engage uh, people in, in doing actual advocacy So we have a website called climatefriendlysupermarkets.org, and we have a citizen science project where folks can actually add their local supermarket to an interactive map. Uh, They can go in and take a picture of a label that says what refrigerant is in that supermarket, uh, send it in to us, and we'll add that to the map. And you can just see looking at this map that there there are already... Many hundreds of stores across the country using HFC-free refrigeration systems, but there are many that are not and are still using these things. So, you know, there are ways and tools there for how you could perhaps engage with that company and ask them questions about, you know, what are their climate goals with regard to reducing, uh, reducing refrigerants. Uh, we also... Have a list of uh, HFC-free refrigerator models on EIA's website that that folks can go. And I don't know if you provide links uh, with the podcast or anything like that, but we could we could give you some of those.
0: We do. Yeah, that'd be great. So the U.S. sounds like is on the right path. We need to accelerate that that path. What What does the global picture look like?
2: Yeah. So at this point, I think more than. More than 200 countries have actually ratified the Kigali Amendment and signed on to this global phase down. Um, I think that's a really hopeful start. Um, and so, what that means is that a lot of countries uh, with a lot less capacity and resources than the United States will need support to do that. But we're in a we're in a hopeful spot, you know, at a global level as well. It's going to be a lot of work to implement this and to make sure that we are. Implementing it properly. Sure. One of the one of the dark sides of this is that when you start phasing down something, when you start limiting its availability, you can create black markets or illegal trade in these substances as well, and see that starting to pop up. Uh, these gases, actually, we've seen this in the previous phase outs of of ozone-depleting refrigerants, suddenly become really valuable to the point where some of the same. You know, criminal networks that were trading in illegal drugs in the '90s, where it suddenly became involved in trading in refrigerants, in illegal refrigerants. Wow! Uh, so we've seen this happen before. Uh, I think, fortunately, we hope that that the US EPA is going to take a really strong approach to implementing this and enforcing it.
0: So I guess you know, kind of stepping back and recapping a little bit, we you know we have this this problem with you know HFCs that that needs to be addressed it needs to be addressed now given the potential negative impacts in the future if we don't get to it but the the positive news if you will is that we have all the the tools that we need to address it and so wondering you know if we can end with and, and you spoke to this a little bit already but like if individuals want to get involved that this is something that resonates with them you know what would you suggest that they consider for potential advocacy?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot that people can do here and, uh, you know, ranging from what you do in your own home with the use of and buying new equipment that uses this stuff. So if you are going to throw out your old air conditioner, make sure that you're using uh, someone for that service who is an EPA uh, approved partner of the RAD program, which is the Responsible Appliance Disposal Program. Uh, If you're going to buy a new fridge or a new air conditioner, head over to to EIA's website for a resource on on a list of HFC-free refrigerator models that are available. Uh, And then lastly, you can can really be an advocate for this issue, both engaging with companies and with the uh, EPA and its implementation of this regulation. And we have a website uh, dedicated to advocating with supermarkets. You can add your local supermarket to a map. So really encourage people to, to head to EI's website and, and check it out.
0: Great, well, we'll definitely have a link because it sounds like there's, there's multiple opportunities to get involved. Well, Christina, thank you so much for making the time to come and talk with us about uh, a critical topic that for a lot of people is probably something that isn't even on their radar.
2: Thanks for having me, Jason. It's been great to hear, uh, be here and, and hope that your listeners are inspired to, to go out and, and find this new unknown area of climate action they can take part in.
0: So, Todd, what were your thoughts on the interview with Christina?
1: Well, I don't know if you know this, Jason, but... I am in the business of facilities, so I consider myself <laughs> to be somewhat of an expert on these topics. Uh, no, actually, I, I, I pretty much just pay one set of people to do work that makes this other set of people quit calling me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do know about HFCs, though, and of course... This kind of ties in a little bit to the tail end of our episode that we did on uh, CFCs and the ozone. So I was, you know, familiar with the topic, but maybe I didn't quite realize kind of the impact of some of these numbers that I'm looking at, you know, about the number you had about they're responsible for, for around 11% of total warming to date. And what uh, Christina was talking about. That they'll, you know, that these HFC emissions are projected to contribute, you know, the equivalent of twenty percent of CO two in twenty by twenty fifty, and could prevent a half a degree Celsius of warming if we don't do what needs to be done. Right? What were some of your takeaways?
0: I think, you know, first and foremost was really that we really need to, you know, as Christina said, accelerate this effort because it's one of those efforts that, you know, all the solutions exist there seems to be generally agreement that we need to do it. And so it's like, you know, why, why don't we move faster?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm curious too. And I think you asked this question in the interview and I just want to make sure that I got the answer correct, that if there's any equipment that's already kind of been built with certain HFCs as the refrigerant type that it doesn't sound like it's, you can just kind of pump something else into the system. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that that is correct. You know, obviously it makes it problematic given that you have all these, you know, existing appliances and air conditioners and cars and all the stuff that sure. basically we're stuck with until you can replace it with a a new piece of equipment that doesn't run on HFCs.
1: I wonder if if there's a possibility with some of these more kind of commercial sized systems that are out there in large buildings if there's a way to retool Certain portions of the system, you know, I get it. Like if you got some window shaker in your house, you know, some window unit, you know, it's not you're not gonna
0: <laughs> pull. It's not the worth pieces it. out of
1: that the cooling loop out. Of it, You're not gonna. It's not worth it. But maybe some of these larger systems that are in place at some of these buildings, especially if it's been
0: recently installed, I I, th- I think you're right though. It it seems like that would be a logical place to to start, and and maybe that technology exists where you're able to kind of do a a retrofit and a swap out.
1: I guess in my, in my world, in my, the professional world that I live in, we take care of a lot of assets and a lot of it's
0: HVAC equipment. And there's a lot of these questions going on right now. You you make a good point though. And I think, you know, the other thing that we really should be emphasizing that's getting attention, but ought to be moving more quickly too, is the adoption of more aggressive, you know, building code and efficiency standards because, Mm -hmm. The reality is if we have more efficient buildings, you know, that means less AC capacity, which means less refrigerants, regardless of what they are, right? So I wanted
1: to ask you about the EPA regulation that was released last fall, and in that same vein also ask you about the Kigali amendment that Christina was talking about and how they compare to one another. Because they seem kind of similar. They they seem like they have similar uh, goals.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the the Kigali Amendment that Christina mentioned—it's really an agreement to to reduce HFCs in this case by eighty percent by the year 2047, if I'm okay. getting that right. And you know, I think the only thing disappointing about that is it's a phase down and not a phase out. But okay. and then you look at the you know recent EPA regulation and. Same thing, right? It's it's intended to be a phase down. The numbers are a little more aggressive, so the EPA, with their their program, is you know saying that they're going to cut HFCs by eighty five percent over the next fifteen years. So, okay, yeah. So I think they're they're, they're complementary, right? I think yeah. If, if I'm understanding the Kigali Amendment, it, what really needs to happen is for other countries to create sort of their their legislation that backs up or aligns with the the commitment. You know, it's interesting as kind of dug into this topic to learn that, you know, when we're talking about HFCs and replacements, that Greenpeace was on this way back in the day. I mean, in, in 92, 93, they actually developed huh. and helped commercialize a, a hydrocarbon refrigerator using a chemical called isobutane as a refrigerant. And then, you know, Christine had mentioned that that's one of sort of the options for like natural refrigerants or, or hydrocarbons. So kind of crazy yeah. that they saw the writing on the wall back then and were, you know, working to develop a solution. Yeah. They, uh, they named it uh, green freeze and <laughs> made it, made it uh, freely available, you know, to the world. So I thought. Very cool. Yeah, definitely a lot of forethought there. It That's awesome. So naturally this all leads to, you know, what can we do? And I think Christina did a great job of laying out, you know, potential actions that we can take personally. And I think the emphasis from my perspective should really be on educating your your friends and family about HFCs and the the need to dispose of, you know, these cooling devices responsibly and that we need to be thinking about, you know, climate-friendly alternatives when when we're buying new. So yeah, tell your friends about HFCs and we'll have links on our website to all the information that Christina talked about. The other action we'd like to encourage folks to take is to tell the EPA to ramp up their efforts to deal with both the, the reclamation and the disposal of refrigerants from appliances at their, at their end of life. Really, every consumer should have easy access to disposal options when they purchase a new appliance. We'll have some talking points on our website to, to send those in. Really need the EPA to, to ramp up their efforts there so that we can ensure that window shakers or fridges or air conditioners at cars, that all of that at the end of life is being disposed of effectively. Definitely. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thanks again to everybody for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast.